This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, Vancouver Mayor like Ken Sim joins us after his ABC party's historic win. We look at what his government's parties will be on day one. Plus, as heavily indebted homeowners feel the pinch of rate hikes, should the Bank of Canada hit the brakes on its war against inflation? And former NHL goalkeeper Corey Hurst joins us as we look at BC's mental health crisis and why more resources aren't being provided. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. As British Columbians went to the polls here in Vancouver, Ken Sim was elected mayor of Vancouver after campaigning on a platform that prioritized public safety and affordability. The leader of the newly formed center-right ABC Vancouver party won by a commanding margin over incumbent Kennedy Stewart. The party dominated Saturday's election with all of its candidates appearing to have won their seats on council, park board and school board with decisive victories of the majority sorry sim who lost the vancouver mayoral race by 957 votes uh, to kennedy stewart in 2018 has now made history by becoming the city's first chinese canadian mayor take a listen now the path to get here was incredibly long 135 years after the first chinese head tax was paid just for the right to come here and work on building a railway Vancouver has elected its first Chinese It was quite the celebration, as you hear on Saturday. Ken Sim joins us now. Ken, thank you for joining us today. Hey, Jazz. Thanks for having me here. Well, it's quite the journey. As you said, it was a very long uh, you know, job approval. I think it took four years, of course, until last time to today. Uh, uh, you are now a mayor-elect. Um, give me a sense of what the last 48 hours have been like for you, not just in front of the camera on Saturday night, but behind the camera. What, what has been going through your mind? What have you been talking about? Because uh, it's a huge responsibility you're taking on now. Yeah, you know, it, it's been kind of a whirlwind, um, but we haven't actually had a lot of time to think about it because uh, we, we had our uh, uh, we had our um, election on Saturday night. We had a couple of beers uh, Saturday uh, night, Sunday morning, uh, and then we went to bed, and then we focused on the transition. So uh, Sunday afternoon was spent uh, with our transition team, with um, you know our, our campaign manager, Kareem Alam, Diane Watts, who is actually the former... Uh, Mayor of Surrey and a member of Parliament. We had um, James Ridge, who was the uh, deputy city manager in the city of Vancouver um, back in, um, uh, what, I guess, like in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had um, Tung Chan, a former city councillor, our council team and our campaign team all working hard um, to um, map out the next steps on how we transition um, so we can hit the ground running come November 7th. What do what tone do you want to set on that first day or your first week? Uh, I mean, this is a, a massive uh, bureaucracy and budget that you that you have to handle with your council colleagues. What's the tone you want to send uh, set on day one? Oh, there's probably five or six different things that we want to set, but you know, we want to bring optimism um, and hope back to our city, and we want to unite our city. Our city feels like it's been divided for such a long time. 
Um, and I, I truly believe that, um, you know, we can u- unite Vancouverites and celebrate our uh, different lived experiences. And when it comes to the hope, uh, be it, uh, you know, um, you know, public safety or getting a housing permit or any other of the 92 different things that we have in our campaign in addition to those two things, um, you know, we, we want to roll them out. We want to hit the ground um, really fast and um you know, if, when you look at the election results, when we put our platform out, uh, the city of Vancouver voters voted on it and they gave us a resounding yes. They liked what they saw and they want it to happen. And so we're going to make it happen. Was there one policy during the election campaign in your mind uh, that resonated the most with the public in regards to uh, whether it's housing, whether it's crime, whatever it may be? Was there one policy that made the difference in your mind? Um, I don't think there was any one thing per se, because Vancouver is a collection of different neighborhoods, different cultures, different, um, you know, different constituencies. And so depending on where you lived, you know, for example, if you lived in Yaletown or Strathcona or Mount Pleasant or Chinatown, your number one concern was probably public safety. Um, If you... You know, we're, uh, let's say, you know, in the millennial sort of category and you're looking for a place to live. Housing was probably your number one category. Um, but de- definitely the, the top two for sure were housing and public safety. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about public safety for a moment. Uh, a lot of conversation has, has, you know, we've talked about just people feeling safe in downtown core, in and around downtown, Chinatown, uh, at tourists, and there's perspectives of Vancouver as well. You've promised 100 police officers, 100 new mental health nurses. How fast do you think you can start that process and how long do you think it'll take to attract those 100 police officers and, and 100 mental health nurses? Yeah, so um, what we um, promised the city of Vancouver was as soon as we got into office and if we had an ABC majority on council, um, we, it would be one of the first things we do. And so we have that majority, so uh, don't be too surprised if it, uh, if it happens in the first couple of uh, council sessions that we approve the hiring of these individuals. Um, I'm optimistic. Um, you know, it, there was a lot of thought and planning that went into uh, developing that um, plan. And we, we had great conversations with the VPD. And by the way, um, full disclosure, the VPD, they were willing to have these conversations with anyone running for elected office. So they weren't doing us any favors whatsoever. Um, but um, when, when we asked them, they said it was completely doable. And the precedent they had um, was back in 2010, they actually hired 200 police officers for the Olympics. So uh, we feel very confident that, um, you know, we can make a lot of progress on the hiring of police officers. So uh, just, uh, to, con- the- just yeah. to confirm, though, you, you're going to approve the hiring of these police officers, mental health nurses, but the actual implementation isn't going to be something that's going to happen within a year. I'm going to assume this will happen over the next four years during your mandate, the hiring of the 100 officers. No, I like we want to hire them as soon as possible. And so um, we feel optimistic that we can make a lot of headway on the bulk of those hires within the first year. And and that's the Justice Institute. I mean, they have the capacity to, to, to give Vancouver the 100 or at least as many as they possibly can compared to other jurisdictions. Do you think that's possible? Look, I, I think there's probably going to be uh, multiple sources uh, where we, um, you know, where we access um, additional police officers. Um, that that's an operational question for the VPD. When we asked them, well, would they be able to do it? They gave us a resounding yes, they would be able to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll, we'll leave it to them. But you know, the, the situation is dynamic as well. For example, 
you know, um, as of the last or this election this weekend, you know, there there's some um, there's movement uh, in Surrey, for example. Now, <laughs> That's true. Look, hey, look we, we, we support our partners. We look at this as a regional issue. That's not the point. The point is uh, situations change and, you know, we may be pleasantly surprised with um, opportunities that present themselves. Mm-hmm. And we also know the VPD is a destination police force. People actually want to work there. And so um, we're, we're very excited about, about the opportunity um, to um, find these individuals and have them, um, you know, um, onboarded um, sooner rather than later. If you're just joining us, we're speaking to Ken Sim, mayor-elect for the city of Vancouver. He, along with his ABC colleagues, uh, had a resounding uh, victory on Saturday, clearly indicating change and uh, Vancouver residents and their desire for change uh, as well. Uh, Ken, let's talk a little bit about the budget itself. Uh, You know, there are obviously going to be tremendous, there's going to be tremendous pressure in regards to spending. Where will you save? Where will you potentially cut yeah, so the first thing we have to do is we have to understand the budget. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go through the budget on a line-by-line basis to figure out uh, you know, what's going on there. Uh, I do want to be very clear. There's no intention whatsoever to cut uh, service levels. Um, so I want to uh, make um, sure that everyone understands that. But there are a lot of, um, I'm sure, opportunities uh, where we have um, – you know, spend on uh, non-service related issues where we can, you know, start to make judgment calls as to, you know, do we prioritize office furniture over public safety? Um, personally, I, uh, right now, <laughs> I, I, you know, I prioritize public safety over office furniture all day long. And so those are the type of pragmatic uh, decisions that we're going to be making once we uh, have access to the budget. So just a quick hot takes here uh, in regard wine. If I wanted to go to the beach or the park, have, have a glass of wine, that is coming? That'll be permanent? Uh, yeah, that's, a, that's the plan. We, uh, we put that in our 94-point uh, platform, and Vancouverites, uh, they gave us a re- resounding heck yes on that one, and so we're going to do it. Uh, in regards to Stanley Park, in regards to bike lanes, or and there's a lot of concern that uh, vehicle traffic was very difficult to go through and get through Stanley Park. That will be changed as well. I want to uh, confirm that. Yeah. So uh, what we've um, what we've talked about is we want to make sure that we're, we're going to start building Vancouver uh, to be the most accessible city on the planet. And by that, uh, look, we, we still want uh, bikes to be able to access it. I'm a, I'm a cyclist. I love, uh, I like uh, bike lanes. And, um, but we also have to make sure that it works uh, for everyone in the city. And so we want to make sure that cars can access the entire park, cyclists can, pedestrians. Um, so it, it's a place for everyone to enjoy. Uh, let's talk a little bit about permitting. Uh, you go through this municip- uh, throughout the Lower Mainland. Every municipality has different processes. Some cases you can get a, a permits approved in six months. I'm talking about housing specifically. In some municipalities, it may be two years. Different projects, different processes. How will you? And Vancouver has this notorious reputation of taking too long to get permits. What will you be doing to reduce wait time? Yeah. So we have our. Um uh, you know, we talked about our three, 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 one plan to speed up permitting. Um, at the end of the day, it's all about the workflow. And uh, so, I my background is I've spent the last twenty plus years working on workflow. I'm a workflow expert, and um, as we improve the processes, we should be able to speed up uh, the permitting um, quite a bit. I like the fact that you mentioned that there are other jurisdictions that are doing it in six months. That's exactly it. Like, 
there, we already have precedents of other jurisdictions in our backyard that are doing a way better job than the city of Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, the, look, we, we can talk about workflow all day long. Um, I don't know how much time we have on this one. <laughs> I, can, I can get really geeky. I actually think we can do uh, uh, laneway houses. You know, if you have a standardized build that's already been done hundreds of times in the city mm-hmm. and it's already going to be built in a place that's already approved for laneway houses, why do you have to wait eight months to two years for that permit? You should literally be able to go on the internet click two buttons and get your permit, um, start your build. And obviously we would still do all the inspections and what have you to make sure you're doing the right things. Um, but, you know, you could literally shave off that entire wait time um, with one simple stroke of the pen. Now, speaking of laneway houses, housing obviously is a major issue in, in communities throughout British Columbia. Um, Minister, uh, well, candidate EB, not Minister EB, uh, soon to be potentially Premier EB has talked about his housing plan of three units potentially in metro areas per uh, per uh, single family lot. Uh, he has talked about allowing uh, uh, secondary suites and homes throughout BC. Basically, he's going to bigfoot municipalities. Are you okay with implementing some of those changes that he has certainly uh, presented in his housing plan, particularly the three units uh, per lot uh, uh, designation? Yeah, so I, I think standing back, what I like about um, Minister Eby's, um, you know, he, he's identified that there is a problem and we have to be bold. And so we will support um, anything that makes sense for the city of Vancouver. Um, and it's really our job to make sure that we have our house in order and that once again it goes back to permitting if we speed up the permitting process mm-hmm. um, you know we don't even have to worry about um, you know some of the issues that are um, ideas that Mr. Uh, Evie will be bringing up because we're, we're going to solve our own internal issues. But I, I understand where you're coming from and I think you have a point there but I think a lot of this also is at its core uh, we built our cities and our lives around the concept of a single family home and what Mr. Eby is suggesting is the single-family home is of the past and is not going to be a priority. Uh, gentle density, you know, uh, that missing middle that we all talk about, townhouses and condominiums, not necessarily built on busy thoroughfares. And, and that also is a bit of a pushback to residents uh, in Vancouver uh, who are going to say, wait a minute, I want to protect my neighbourhood the way it is. And that ultimately falls at, at the feet of the mayor who has to deal with, with all of it, right? his own residents, his own constituents, plus a, a senior gov- level of government. Are you okay with some of those things that may come to four where you're going to have to talk to single-family homeowners and say, look, we are going to add three-story uh, walk-ups and those types of things. I mean, that that's going to come during your tenure. Yeah, look, I, what I can do is I can control our actions uh, at the city of Vancouver. You know, what um, Mr. Uh, Evie decides to uh, implement or not, if he gets the opportunity, we'll deal with that situation then. But what I can tell you is... Um, we're going to speed up the permitting process. Uh, we already have uh, uh, things in work, like the, the Broadway plan, uh, Jericho, Sanok. I know that that's um, not like that's Squamish First Nation, but we already have a bunch of things in the works. And um, if, if we just speed up the process there, we can build a lot more housing faster. Uh, I think there has to be something to be said about single-family homes. Like when you look at, um, you know, the, the cultural aspect of some of these um uh, neighborhoods there are you know ethnic intergenerational families living in these single family homes and you actually could have situations where you have more density in a single family home than you would have in an entire floor in a condo tower in cold harbor 
and we have to acknowledge that. And so, um, as mayor of Vancouver, uh, with our councillors, we'll make sure that we make pragmatic decisions that are long term and will make sense for the city of Vancouver. Well, Ken, I appreciate our conversation. Look forward to having you on uh, in the weeks uh, and months ahead because you've got a lot on your plate and a lot of these decisions are going to be transformational, transformational potentially for the city. So uh, I've always appreciated you coming on the show. Look forward to having you on again. Thank you so much and, and all the best to you. Thank you very much. Throughout this election campaign, we have spent a significant amount of time talking about the major issues during the civic election uh, campaign. Every Wednesday on this show and on Saturday night on Global BC, we joined our civic election panel. I thought it was important to bring the band back together one last time after Saturday's results so we could see what issues and themes stood out for them. Andrea Reimer started her public work as a community organizer on issues of social, economic and environmental justice. In 2002, she ran and won a seat on Vancouver School Board, uh, first for the Green Party in Canada, and she, uh, went on to be elected to Vancouver City Council from 2008 to, th- to uh, 2018 with Vision Vancouver. Andrea, welcome. Thanks, Jess. Nice to see you. Yes, nice to see you through too as well through Zoom. And Helsium is an elected Indigenous leader as chair of the Squamish Nation Council. His nation is known for its work on the large-scale development in the city of Vancouver, including the Sinoc lands in Kitsilano, as well as the Jericho and Heather Street lands. Uh, welcome, Helsium. Thank you. And Mary Polak is a strategic advisor at Maple Leaf Strategies and served 15 years as an MLA and held several uh, portfolios, including Minister of Environment and Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure. Mary, welcome. Nice to see you again, Jess. Yes, that's right. Uh, Andrea, let me start with you. Let's focus on Vancouver because you know the city well. Uh, What did the ABC sweep say to you? Well, I mean, it was definitely a um, commanding majority. It's rare to get 50% or over 50% in Vancouver. I know um, the party I was with did it a few times, and I know how hard that is. Um, They definitely um, had a good ground game, which I think is something that was on everybody's mind, is it's one thing to get support. It's another thing to get support to the polls, and apparently they were quite good at that as a new party. You just don't know. Um, But I think it also spoke to a trend we saw all across BC, which is that voters don't like dysfunctional councils um, and they really wanted change. Now, the nature of that change was different around the province. So if you had a center-right council that was dysfunctional, you got a center-left one on Saturday night. Mm -hmm. Um, Here in Vancouver, we had a center-left council that's been replaced by a center-right one. So I think the name of the game for all these new councils is... Be functional, get down to work, um, reach across the aisle as much as you can, reach over to Victoria and other places, regardless of your political stripe, and deliver for people living in our cities and local government areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, um you know the city uh, well. Uh, there's, there's, there are those that say, look, there's, um, there's been a bit of a back-to-basics push. Uh, folks who didn't like the, the, the paper cup tax, or the parking tax, all those types of things that uh, City Hall needs needs to get back to its sort of core business. Uh, am I overstating it, or do you think there's a bit of that as well, that the city needs to get back to sort of what city councils generally are known for, community centres, potholes, uh, all those kind of things that they that they are generally expected to do well at, rather than worrying about the bigger issues like climate change? Well, I think that um, in any government, municipal, provincial, federal, even First Nations, and also any form of leadership, there's a fact of life, which is that you are going to be remembered for the disasters that happened on your watch. You're not going to be remembered for the disasters you avoided. So for things that are felt by people, you know, they become controversies and you become known by them. 
there's a number of um, issues that one throughout the region, whether it's things like uh, support for active infrastructure, reconciliation was a popular uh, promise across the region in many races, um, housing and increasing density and building nonprofit and social housing, you know, even in places like Penticton and Maple Ridge, where there was a very fierce fight between the local government and the province in support of social housing. Mm -hmm. uh, those places elected, you know, very pro-housing uh, 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 councils. So I, I do think that there's um, a desire by the electorate to ensure that their local government is taking care of things that they, you know, need to take care of. Mm -hmm. But there's also a reasonable expectation. I think voters just, they want government to take care of things that are important to them. And sometimes that might include things like climate change. Sometimes it might include other issues, but I do think that when you're in government and you're pitching um, solutions to big social issues, big political issues, and they hurt ordinary working people um, in the way that say a cup tax or certain road taxes or even increases on parking can hurt uh, working people, then there's a narrative there that calls into question whether the government in power is actually helping working people. Mm -hmm. And then it's easy for another party to come in and say, I'm actually representing the working people and I'll help you. And they have a reasonable case to make when that happens. Mary, let's uh, let me go to you here for a second. Uh, Langley Township, where Rich Coleman has a very high profile, been an MLA, cabinet minister, deputy premier. Uh, many expected him to do very well, win, and he did not. Uh, you saw Doug McCallum uh, out uh, for a variety of reasons. But your thoughts, your, your takeaways particularly south of the Fraser, you know, some have said there's a changing face of, of uh, suburban Vancouver and you're starting to see that now at the polls. Do you buy that or do you think it was just a, a different reason as to why Mr. Mr. Coleman didn't get in? Well, in Langley Township, it's pretty straightforward. Um, everyone for quite a long time now has known that Eric Woodward was the one to beat. Uh, Blair Whitmarsh, who came second, has been campaigning for a long time. And Rich entered the race fairly late. Um, so, you know, I, is it changing demographic? I don't think the numbers bear that out. If you add together Rich Coleman's and Blair Whitmarsh's um, uh, collective votes, uh, they would have easily beat Eric Woodward. Um, so it, I think there you're just looking at a classic vote split. And Eric Woodward certainly isn't markedly uh, left, if you will. Um, so, I, you know, I think there you're just looking at the personality of that particular area. Generally speaking in the Valley, though, um, you know, you've seen some consistency. Um, uh, the new mayor in Abbotsford, for example, uh, while he's a new mayor, Henry Braun decided not to run again. Um, nevertheless, he's a former Abbotsford first councillor, um, and so really, uh, south of the Fraser, things haven't changed all that dramatically in terms of uh, what the voters are expressing uh, at the ballot box. I do think, though, um, you take all of this in, and I mentioned this at the beginning of our broadcast last night, I think after COVID, the average voter is thinking a lot closer to their own front door in terms of what issues they prioritize when they vote. I think that is going to be with us for quite some time. Uh, Barry, let me go to you. You know, we, we, we've talked about Vancouver, we talk about Surrey, we talk about Langley Township, but ultimately so much of the conversation that we have um, is really around the region and that region and the decisions we make go to the Metro Vancouver Board, which is not elected directly. Um, give me a sense of what that means, because you've been at some of these meetings first as a minister and having to deal with the Metro Board. What is that like, particularly when you have new mayors and councillors jo joining the board? 
Well, and we will have a fair number of them. Um, fully 55% of the communities in Metro Vancouver have elected new mayors. So that could mean significant change in terms of the approach Metro Vancouver takes to decisions people often don't think about. Um, they can significantly affect rezoning decisions, um, decisions around solid waste management. Um, all of those things uh, can have a big impact on people's daily lives and on the type of development and densities that are seen in communities around the province mm-hmm. or around the, the region, I should say. Andrea, uh, let's touch a little bit uh, on crime for a moment. I had Ken Sim on, uh, well, just about an hour ago, and we did talk about um, his 100 new police officers and mental health nurses. He says uh, in the first few meetings, they're going to approve it. Uh, no guarantee, of course, they can hire 100 uh, officers right away, although you would think there may be some openings in Surrey potentially <laughs> for that, uh, based on the conversation that's going on. Um, how much of a role do you think crime played? And if there was one policy that ABC introduced during the, the, the election, was that the one, do you think, that put them over the edge in regards to the, the support that they got from the public? Well, I think, I mean, the fundamental issue was the dysfunction of council. And that's true both in Vancouver and Surrey, as we've discussed. But I think um, the the issue of crime definitely has been rising as a concern in Vancouver had a lot of random um, violent attacks. And that, of course, makes people scared that it could happen anywhere, anytime. And the reality is crime as a whole has been down, but that doesn't diminish the impacts on the people that have been experiencing it and this fear of, of the random violence. I think the, the I mean, I'll say knowing that they have to go immediately into budget discussions, mm-hmm. um, that, that may sober up some of the discussions about <laughs> such a large cost item, um, particularly with the inflationary pressures that Vancouver is facing, just to pay the extra incremental cost of police next year of the ones that exist is going to be a, a significant challenge, let alone new ones. Um, but I, I think the bigger issue for Ken Sim is regaining the trust of people who felt that was broken when he accepted an endorsement from the police. Um, there are inevitably, Vancouver has a lot of police-involved shootings um, relative to other areas. He is the chair of a civilian board that's supposed to provide impartial oversight. I mean, I think that's got to be a pretty high up his list of priorities is to regain the confidence of Vancouverites that he's there um, as an impartial uh, judge when we get to those situations. And I think, I mean, obviously in Surrey, policing is a huge issue um, and it'll be interesting to see how they resolve it. It struck me that um, Brenda Locke at 28% of the vote got exactly the same percent that Kennedy Stewart had in 2018. Um, Some lessons to be learned there is that 72% of Vancouver, or in this case, Surrey, did not vote for you. Mm -hmm. Um, And you got to build some bridges. And and that doesn't necessarily work if you're making definitive statements that might alienate some people without getting the information you need to move forward. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the other major issues for this region, of course, is housing. Uh, You have a potential NDP leadership hopeful, Mr. Eby, uh, David Eby, uh, a Vancouver MLA, uh, who uh, is talking about uh, allowing three units per uh, per uh, property, a single-family lot in regards to uh, homes. He's talked about adding secondary suites and a variety of changes, uh, which in some cases may even Bigfoot uh, municipal councils. Hell Salem, your thoughts on, on what Mr. Eby has said he's going to do with what Vancouver is doing presently? I mean, is it too much to ask for any mayor or council to deal with the affordability challenges? Because he's coming in with a clean sweep, those are huge expectations. 
Um, how does a mayor deal with everything that, that is expected, especially with housing, while the provincial government is actually talking about introducing significant changes from the Victoria level? The, the truth is, and this is the hard truth for a lot of um, voters, whether it's in BC or across the country, is that the, the rise in housing rents and prices is happening all over the world. It's felt in all urban centers. The scale of it is different from place to place, but you go all the way around the world and everybody is experiencing the same affordability pressures. So can one single mayor in, whether even Vancouver, um, impact uh, that when it requires a regional uh, approach, requires a provincial approach, or requires federal approach, or requires international approach. So, you know, you can um, provide relief around the edges to a lot of people, and that actually changes a lot of people's lives. You know, having access to uh, some of the, the low-income housing that's been built over the last few years, um, rental housing as opposed to not being, you know, being able to buy, those things do matter to people. But, you know, there is a fact that um, no matter what mayor or council is elected, and there's a number who have run on very pro-housing agendas, Victoria, uh, the uh, city of North Van, um, even Vancouver have all um, campaigned on um, missing middle style housing, increasing density to a more missing middle style, um, you know, three story to six story sort of developments. Um, but I'm also, you know, looking at how the platforms really talked about um, providing all kinds of options and supporting not market and non-market housing. And, you know, Ken Sim and ABC, like a lot of the mayors in the region, are, have a, a friendly uh, government in Victoria and a friendly government in, in Ottawa. Those might not last. Um, and they're going to have to decide how quickly they can muster their strength. And one of the biggest strengths that I think Ken Sim and a lot of other councils have is if they can go to the table with the feds in the province and say, we can guarantee you a massive amount of rezoning on non-market or rental, you come to us with funding or subsidies or tax breaks and we'll guarantee you, they can now do that. That couldn't happen under uh, Kennedy Stewart. That can happen under a Ken Sim government and it can happen across the region. Hal Salem, uh, Andrea Reimer, Mary Polak, it has been absolutely wonderful last six weeks uh, having you folks on as part of this uh, Civic Affairs panel, and Saturday night was uh, a lot of fun. I hope we can do this again quite soon, but thank you so much. It's been an absolute ball on my end. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jess. Thanks, Jess. Thank you. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The majority of Canadians say they're feeling the effects of the Bank of Canada's aggressive interest rate hikes. 
according to a Yahoo Maru public opinion poll, which was released late uh, last week. Uh, the survey of 1,500 Canadians found that 57% of respondents say they are generally feeling the impact of rising interest rates, uh, with 39% saying that even higher rates are causing some anxiety uh, over the impact uh, uh, on their finances. Uh, of the poll also found that the remaining 18% say they are, quote, worried sick about the effects of the rate hikes could have on, on them or their families. And of that group, of, of the, those that say they're worried sick, 22% say they are making less than 50 thousand uh, dollars annual now the bank of canada has been rapidly hiking its benchmark interest rates in the wake of skyrocketing inflation and they've issued five consecutive hikes four of them outsized since march the central bank's key rate has gone from 0.25 percent to 3.25 percent the highest level since april of 2008 another hike is expected at the end of this month now some bc residents say they've had enough recently there was a rally at surrey's bear creek park where many people protested against the rate increases. Uh, joining me now is Hanvir Rundava. He is a lawyer with Rundava Law Centre and uh, was involved uh, with that uh, protest. Hanvir, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Mr. Joho, for having me on the show. So uh, tell me, why do we need to slow down interest rate hikes considering inflation is hurting Canadians as well? Absolutely, Mr. Joho. Just as a brief introduction, the reason why are we even in this situation after the protest? So recently, just about three, four weeks ago, I am having a lot of um, inquiries as to people asking about the foreclosure process and also how does the bankruptcy works, or also that if the house is sold on foreclosure, will their debt be paid off? So of course, these are very troubling questions. And some of these people, even if they want to let go of their equity and they sell at very, very low rates, they can't even pay off their mortgage debt. So now the question becomes is, if the interest rates are not increased, then how do you control inflation? And that's what the Bank of Canada tells everybody, that listen, inflation is high and we need to control it. And that's why we are increasing interest rate rapidly. Mm -hmm. But now, the situation that homeowners, this group that we have also started, and we have 26,000 plus petitions now, electronically signed and plus paper petition as well, within just one week. The situation of homeowners is this. The homeowner is also fighting inflation. In this whole situation, somehow, the governments are neglecting the fact that a homeowner is also being burdened by inflation. Inflation is the cost of purchasing outside. Uh, If the taxes have gone up for them, the utilities have gone up for them. Mm -hmm. They also have to pay for food, clothing, the children's needs. And the maintenance cost has gone almost double. Forget about the inflation, 7 or 8%. Uh, so yes. in the case of what you're... And I understand the cost. You're, I, I don't dispute that. Um, but what do you think the government, specifically the Bank of Canada, should be doing? Are you saying yes. the rate increases so, just need to be slow or you just not move forward? No, absolutely. Very good question, Mr. Johal. So in our petition too, what we have suggested and what we are asking government and the Bank of Canada to do is that they need to have a separate slab for residential housing because residential housing is tied down with an essential need of the Canadians, which is housing itself, not only housing for the families which take on the burden of becoming responsible and then they become they take on mortgages, they are proceeding in Canadian society, and but also they're providing housing at a reasonable price for other Canadians. Mm-hmm. Now, when you burden this sector very enormously, then you're looking at the issues also at the tenants' rents as well. Mm-hmm. So now, 
My concern is, so what are we suggesting to the government? So what we are suggesting in our petition is this, that yes, Homeowners acknowledge inflation has to be controlled, but government and Bank of Canada has to acknowledge that the 3% increase in interest payments in just, just the last few months is basically bringing them to a breaking point. So basically, the government and the Bank of Canada should just sit down and figure out better ways to control inflation, which is increase the interest rate, yes, but cap it for the residential sector, at least at the stress test point, which was 5.25%. Now, so, so right now, it is at 5.45%. Some have criticized even the uh, the rally of saying, look, these folks looks like they probably own a second or third or fourth property, that they bought bought too many properties, they've taken on too much debt when interest rates were low. You take a risk, and this is one of those risks, and some of these people may lose their properties. We're not talking about potentially people with their first single-family home. Some have criticized the very people who were at these protests that, look, these pro- people f- sound like they have a second, a third, even a fourth property, and that we shouldn't be worried about them because they took that risk, and part of that risk is uh, interest rates going up. And, and this, is a, this is a self-inflicted wound on their part. The government shouldn't be, and the Bank of Canada shouldn't be worrying about that. Yes, so Mr. Johol, this is a very good question. And actually, I appeared in Mr. Thin's show as well, and I clarified. This movement is not for people who have multiple properties. This movement is for people for principal homes. That is the essential core of this movement because those are the average homeowner Canadians who are thoroughly at the brink of right now breaking. We are going to be, and we are suggesting, I am in the midst of just finalizing the email to the Prime Minister, that listen, these people, the principal homeowners, they need to provide it some sort of a relief. One of the very good examples is in U.S., they give you tax deduction on the interest you pay on your principal home. So if, but, but that is the core of it. But let's stretch it. Let's look at people who buy more properties, right? Now, even if the people who buy more properties as rental properties, what are they doing with that? They are providing affordable housing, right? Now, if you will burden them, let's say, and some of them will break, some of them will not break, but what will happen to the rent? The rent will go up. It's very simple mathematics. Yeah, but but if, you're, if you're taking a risk buying a second uh, investment property, a third investment property, it's not the government's job and Bank of Canada's job to be there when situations like this occur. A rapid increase because we have to deal with inflation. It shouldn't be the government's job there to provide a safety net. You're telling me that the, what you're saying here is that your concern is predominantly single-family homeowners with one principal property, not people who own two or three or four properties. Absolutely. That is our main concern. Rest is, but again, when we provide it to the government and Bank, Bank of Canada, these, our suggestion, at the end of the day, the government's job is, Mr. Johol, is to provide affordable housing, which they have thoroughly failed at the provincial level. So how will, let's say, even let's, this is a thing, because I cannot at this point just limit the whole approach. So I'm telling the government, listen, we also have another issue of affordable housing. When you increase these rapidly interest rates affecting, let's say, these other rental properties, what will they do? This burden will get shifted to a great degree to the next person trying to rent. Mm-hmm. So then how will we make the housing affordable for them? Now, a lot of the projects have been stalled. With, you know, well, all the builders who I know, they come and they talk, developers talk. They have stopped building. So now you're looking at further issue of how will they meet up their deficiencies and number of houses they need to provide. Yeah. So all together... What our concern is this, the residential housing sector is an essential need of the Canadians. Yes, at the very heart of it, 
please look out for these hardworking average Canadians who have purchased a principal residence to live in. They should be immediately be given a relief and also bring in measures to stop people from buying multiple properties or they should pay some sort of a cost for it. Mr. Rindaba, we've we've run out of time. I do want to thank you so much uh, for your comments and uh, we look forward to chatting with you in the future as well. Thank you so much. But Mr. Mr. Johal, just one last thing. If we have the petition that we have started is on change.org. Okay. Our appeal is who is being burdened by this, a principal homeowner, they should go on change.org and look at the petition for homeowner's relief. And if they like, because it's written over there in English, like what we are trying to propose, then they should support it so we can take this message to the government. All right. Homeowners Relief at change.org. Mr. Randava, thank Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, this year, 4,000 Canadians will die by suicide. This rate is even higher for men and among Indigenous communities. Suicide is usually the result of a combination of factors. These can include uh, addiction and mental illness, uh, especially depression, uh, physical deterioration, financial difficulties, marriage breakdown, and lack of social and medical support. Evidence has indicated that one of the most common risk factors for suicide is a diagnosis of a mental health problem uh, uh, or illness. It is a serious public health problem with lasting harmful effects on individuals, families, and communities. Recently, our next two guests wrote an opinion piece for the Vancouver Sun on this subject. Corey Hirsch and Chris Gardner came together a year ago and have embarked on a province-wide speaking tour that is now going to cities across Canada. They have spoken to more than 30 gatherings of business leaders, contractors, construction professionals, and members of the public. Uh, Corey Hirsch is a former NHL player and a mental health advocate. Corey, welcome to the show. Hey, yeah, thanks for having me today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having Chris, too. I know he's there somewhere. He's there. I was just about to introduce him. Chris Gardner is president of the Independent Contractors and Business Association. Chris, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon, Jazz. It's a real pleasure to be here today. All right. Well, let's start with uh, you, Corey. First of all, how did you get involved in your advocacy around mental health and, and suicide prevention? Oh, I just, I had my own struggles when I was playing in the National Hockey League, and you know, they were uh, pretty severe, severe enough that uh, derailed, derailed my career. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a passion of mine that, uh, you know, that we don't have those issues and, and that someone else doesn't have to, you know, deal with the stigma and, and people can feel safe to come forward to as well. Mm-hmm. Now, Chris, uh, tell us a little bit about your unique story as well. Well, I think there's, a, there's two things. There's a twin thing. My father um, took his own life when I was five years old. And, um, and when someone in your family um, takes their own life, mm-hmm. it leaves a, a void. There's a void and a loss that, that's, that can't be replaced and, and is generational and, uh, because there's no answers. Uh, the family members, friends, the community are left um, with um, many, many unanswered questions. And then you combine that with my role as the uh, president of the Independent Contractors and Businesses Association. We're a construction association. We have 140,000 people on one of our benefit plans, on one of our health and dental plans. On every single one of our plans, in the top three drugs, uh, every single one of our plans, uh, there are drugs for depression, anxiety, sleep disorders. And the suicide rate for construction professionals is five times the national average. So I've got my personal story combined with the compelling challenge that we're facing in construction um, is driving um, our partnership with Corey Hirsch. And and you marry up Corey Hirsch's very compelling personal story uh, as as someone who excels 
in professional hockey. Um, and we came together, and as you said, we've now done 30 speaking engagements, and we're going to do more, and it's a very important message. Mm-hmm. Um, Corey, what do you think needs to be done moving forward? Uh, you know, we, we we would never do a segment probably on mental health 10 years ago. It just wasn't something we talked about. Moving forward, what would you like to see done? Well, more of what Chris and I are doing, which is trying to educate people and encourage them to get you know, help. That's really uh, the bottom line is encourage people to come forward, not to suffer in silence because of what somebody else thinks. You know, um, we need to educate our youth. We need to educate people in general uh, in order to make a change in this. And and that's where ICBA's done an incredible job. And and I wouldn't team with just anybody. Uh, You know, um, ICBA has been, we have the same passion, we have the same goals, mm-hmm. um, and that's to put a, a dent into suicide and, and erasing the stigma. So, um, you know, Chris and I have have, uh, have really band together and become fast friends of, with the same mission, and, and we're not stopping. Uh, we're just going to keep plowing forward. Um, we're going to talk to whoever will listen out there, and that's that's really our goal. Um, you know, business is one thing, but this is... This is on a personal level for both of us that we really want to make a change, you know, in society on suicide and mental health. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris, uh, construction, uh, like hockey, is obviously male-dominated. Um, not things you usually talk about when it comes to mental health. Um, the tour is part of this, obviously, in the conversation that you and Corey are having. It still must be a challenge, though, because there's still a stigma around talking about mental health, isn't there? Yeah, you know, there's a there's a stoic mentality uh, among many men, and in construction and professional uh, hockey, uh, in this case, um, it's very much put your head down and work through it. Um, and uh, if you're going to have a challenge, uh, don't do it during game time. Don't during don't do it on the job site. Um, we've got a we've got a deadline to meet. We've got a game to play and, and win. And so there's a lot of similarities there in, in the culture. And, you know, at ICBA, we've started a program uh, for construction professionals. And the goal of the program is very simple. It's, it's end the stigma and start a conversation, be able to normalize the conversation so someone can put up their hand um, and say, hey, I'm struggling. And then someone who hears that on the other side of the conversation knows what to do. And so you remove the embarrassment, the awkwardness, the sense of shame if someone says, hey, I'm struggling and I need some help. Have someone say, okay, that's okay. We've got a program or we've got these resources. Uh, Let's get you some help. Beyond the the stigma and the conversation, uh, in regards to government, uh, we see we have a you know I think forty two cents for every dollar that we pay in taxes now goes towards health care, uh, but very little of that actually is in mental health, isn't it? And that's a challenge, and we've got to do more. There has to be uh, there is a tsunami as we as you know mental health and the challenges around having these conversations was a problem before the COVID-19 global pandemic. But as we've come out of that, there is a tsunami of mental health challenges coming at us, and the healthcare system is ill-equipped. Um, and in so many ways, our healthcare system is collapsing around us. Mm-hmm. And um, so we've got to, not only do we have to start the conversation, we've got to make sure the resources are there, the psychologists, the counselors, the resources. So that would, you know, you, it's, it's, if you start the conversation, you can't say, okay, great, we're going to get you help, and it'll be six months before you can see a professional. We've got to get those resources to people when they need it. And right now, the system is failing all of us. Uh-huh. Uh, Corey, uh, I'm sure you talked to former colleagues, uh, hockey players that are, are presently out there. Is, is the 
conversation changing in professional sports and do you think among men that you're talking to in regards to the stigma? It's yeah, it's better. Uh, this next generation is a lot better talking than my generation, but uh, it's still there, you know, and that's, that's just what it is. And I, I don't think we're ever going to change that completely, you know, mm-hmm. but we can make strides and we can, we can help men realize, you know what, and, and go get, you know, go get the help, like suffering in silence. You know, why, why would you do that to yourself? Why would you do that to your family? Why would you, because of what somebody else thinks? I mean, that's ridiculous. You know, go get the help you need. Um, and, and like, you know, what Chris, we had talked about three and four suicides are male. We, we need to do something about that. And, you know, ultimately, if, if you want ICBA and Chris and I to come speak to your executives, your employees, whatever, you know, contact ICBA. We'll be there in a heartbeat. And uh, we educate. Um, you know, we we talk to people. We don't just go in and, and tell a story and leave. Like, we, we stay in contact. We stick around after. Like, we're, we're there to talk to people and help people. So, um, you know, as far as men go, it's, it's females, too, especially in the construction industry. They have to put on a tough face. And, um, you know, we look at males in general, but, man, it's our females, too. It's, it's all around the board, and we need to help people. Mm-hmm. Was it, how difficult was it for you, beyond just asking for help, but then saying, I'm going to tell my story publicly and talk to people? Um, it, w- w- did that take time for you because, because of that stigma? Well, yeah, it was 20 years. I mean, when I struggled, it was 19, mid-90s. So, I mean, yeah. imagine the stigma back then. It was even worse 20 years before that. But, uh, you know, I've got a book out now, um, you know, that just launched last week. Um, so, you know, that's out. I encourage people to read that. It's full of educational anecdotes and, and all sorts of stuff. And it, was, it wasn't as tough as you think. It was tough at the start. But now that it's out, it's been the greatest gift that it's ever given me. And, you know, look at what I've been able to do through writing a book and through my mental health challenges. I've been able to work with ICBA and Chris, Mm -hmm. uh, and that is one of the greatest gifts I've ever gotten. They care, they're compassionate, they're empathetic, and I couldn't ask to be a part of a better group than them. And the book is called The Save of My Life. You can pick it up now. Uh, Corey Hirsch, Chris Gardner, thank you for your time today. Really enjoyed our conversation. Uh, Thank you for having me. The price of food getting higher seemingly every week. Wouldn't you love it if you could magically freeze prices for the next three months? Well, consider that wish granted. Loblaws announced today that their no-name products will indeed remain at the same price until the end of January of 2023. So why aren't Canadians celebrating that announcement? Our show contributor, John Jang, has more. Canadians love a good deal. That's why, for so long, we have enjoyed rolling up the rim, or why we immediately check what's on sale whenever we go out shopping. But that doesn't mean that Canadians are easily fooled. So will this actually help families across the country, or have consumers seen through a not-so-clever PR strategy? Earlier today, I spoke with Dr. Stuart Smith, an associate professor at the University of Saskatchewan and an industry-funded chair in agri-food innovation, to get his reaction on today's big announcement. The retail sector in Canada has been been facing a lot of pressure over the and increasingly over the last couple of months to to be a little bit more transparent, uh, to to follow the lead of some of the European retailers that that started freezing prices in the summer and and so this is you know this could be viewed as as the Canadian retail space sort of stepping up and and catching up to to what's going on in in other parts of the world. Um, Alternatively, you know, it, it 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 also smacks of a little bit of a, a significant PR stunt that, you know, here here we've got a retailer, six months after food prices really started to increase, 
finally getting around to doing something. And so, you know, from a from a consumer perspective, I think a lot of consumers um, and, and seeing some indication of that already online, um, this this is not sitting terribly well with with a lot of shoppers. And and I'm not sure that Loblaws is going to get the the response from from shoppers that they're hoping for. That leads into my next question, because I was going to ask, you know, if, if they if they truly cared about affordability and wanting to help Canadian families uh, coast to coast to coast, wouldn't they have done a similar freeze months ago? Because to your point about what's happened in Europe, my understanding is that back in August, a, a French supermarket chain announced their plans to freeze prices up until the end of November. So obviously, a lot of laws comes in here today with the announcement. Yes, they'll freeze prices until the end of January. But I guess some people would say, well, what took you so long? Well, exactly. And the other thing I think that that's unique is, is they're doing it just after Thanksgiving. You know, if you really mm-hmm. wanted to be sincere to, to to your clients, why wouldn't they have done this two and a half or three weeks ago, um, so that anybody buying additional items or you know for Thanksgiving could have taken advantage of those savings previously? So, you know, I, I, I'm not, you know, I, I guess I I haven't seen enough of a response from from what other retailers may do. Um, what, what some of the, the additional coverage from, from online, you know, consumer responses are going to be to, 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 to really make a, a final decision on, on just how sincere Loblaws is, is with this announcement. Uh, does January 31st represent a more meaningful date than most people would know? Or was it just kind of arbitrarily chosen? Like it doesn't mean like there's like a big price fall off or anything like that, is it? No. And the worry I've got with, with picking a, a date and then freezing prices is that the inflationary pressures aren't going to change or or significantly subside over the next three and a half months. So so what happens then on the first of February? Will we see a, a twenty or 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 you know a significant increase in in price um, because those prices have been frozen? And so it it may trigger more consumer backlash if the price of those products makes a, a significant jump then um, come the 1st of February. Uh, we're in conversation with Dr. Stuart Smith. He's an associate professor at the University of Saskatchewan and industry-funded chair in agri-food innovation, talking again about the announcement from Loblaws today of freezing the prices of no-name brands and products up until the end of January for next year. And Dr. Smith, you know, uh, having taken a look at uh, affordability issues in and around parts of Metro Vancouver, uh, I think it's a microcosm, again, of what else is happening across the rest of the country. We know, for example, a lot more people have been using services like uh, the food bank in recent months because of inflation and because the dollar is struggling and jobs aren't matching the rate of inflation like there's all these reasons why food prices are going up i i guess though like when you take a look at the announcement today like objectively it can help canadian families of course anytime you can help with affordability that's a positive thing but i guess like Coming from our backgrounds as, you know, me and a journalist, uh, you as an expert, we kind of approach it with more skepticism because I think we see the bigger picture of this being a company PR ploy. But I suppose my question to you is, you know, will this genuinely help Canadian families that perhaps are struggling right now? I'm hopeful that it's going to help out a little bit. You you mentioned in the lead up there that, you know, the exchange rate is is impacting what we pay for particularly 
um, imported fruits and vegetables right now. So, so say for example, in, in frozen brand name uh, vegetables, freezing the price of, of them for the next few months would certainly provide some benefit to, to households that, that, that may be struggling more than, than, the, um, than the average household in terms of providing nutritious um, food products week in and week out. So, so holding, you know, the prices on, on fruits and vegetables constant, if, if that's possible, I think is, will certainly help provide more nutritious food to, to, to households with, with young children, which I, I think is the really important part of the question. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.